Hey guys, welcome to Precision Nutrition's The Complete Fitness Professional Podcast. I'm Dr. John Berardi, co-founder of Precision Nutrition, and if you're not familiar with us, over the last 15 years, we've become the world's largest online nutrition, fitness, and health coaching company. Most interesting for health and fitness pros, we've turned the lessons learned coaching over 200,000 clients into a complete nutrition and health coaching system called the Precision Nutrition Certification. It's the industry's most recognized career-changing coaching system anywhere. In this podcast, which is a mix of recorded articles, interviews, and roundtable discussions, myself and my Precision Nutrition colleagues will coach you on growing your business, helping more people, and becoming a better coach. We'll help you become more than a personal trainer, strength coach, or nutritionist. We'll help you become the complete fitness professional. So let's get started. Hey guys, JB here. Just wanted to welcome you to this video seminar. I recorded it live in London, England, and in the seminar, we'll be talking about the best diet. Actually, it's a question I'm asked more than any other. Which diet camp do you belong to? Do I recommend paleo or vegan, low carb or intermittent fasting? So in this seminar, I explain why those are actually the wrong questions to ask. Offer a new question and reveal what kind of nutrition guy I really am. I have to say, my friends in the UK really seem to love this talk, and I had an absolute blast presenting it. So get comfortable, get out a pen and paper for notes, and enjoy the show. I was doing a, I guess, a media tour in Canada not too long ago, and I was not even talking about what the best diet is at all. That was not even part of the experience or what you know my media hook was for that particular outing. And, you know, I was going to TV stations, I was talking with journalists, I was, you know, doing radio. And when I got home, I was kind of processing my experience. And I started to realize I kept getting these questions and they were all cloaked differently. And they sound a lot like what your clients might be asking you. It sounds a lot like what happens when I go to like holiday parties and my family asks me, right? This is this kind of surface, kind of general questions. You do fitness and nutrition stuff. So blah, here's my question, right? And it might sound like this, you know, I visited your website and I'm not sure yet. Do you guys believe in paleo? Is that how you recommend that people eat? Or is your advice closer to Canada's food guide? We all know the long history that food guides have and our relationship with them in the fitness industry. Uh, another type of question coming from a TV broadcaster, off the air of course. Your coaching program sounds great, but if I were to sign up for it, would I just have to cut out all my carbs? You've never heard any of these questions, have you? Um, here's another one from a production assistant. I have a friend who's a vegan and she's super healthy. I'm thinking of trying it. What do you think? Okay. So you guys have probably heard things like this and you could probably come up with a dozen others that sound kind of similar. And as I was just thinking through my experience of being out doing this media thing, I'm like, okay, these are people who are supposed to be interviewing me in a professional capacity. But when we go off the air, Right? And these aren't just general journalists. These are people who do fitness segments, right? So they should be a bit more knowledgeable. These are the types of questions that they're asking, okay? And really, when it boils down to it, what I think they're asking is paleo, Mediterranean, vegan, low carb, high carb, fasting. Should I eat breakfast or shouldn't I eat breakfast? What should I eat for breakfast? All this information is coming at us all the time. In fact, we had an expert on yesterday who believed the opposite of what you believe. So when it comes down to it, I want to know what's the best diet. That's what they want to know. So did you think about what your answer would be? Did you think about how you would answer that question? I'm sure you've answered it before, and you'll probably have to answer it again. Any ideas you want to throw out? I know this is totally putting people on the spot. Go ahead. Okay, so no processed foods is the best diet. Any, any other ideas that you would throw out? What's that? Reduce portion sizes, okay. Whatever it is, it needs to fit in with your lifestyle. So whatever the best diet is, it has to fit in with your lifestyle. She's gonna say the same, whatever suits you, okay? So a lot of different ideas here, okay? So let's explore this together. I sometimes wonder why people get so confused about this whole diet thing. Obviously, you guys have ready answers, right? 
whatever is best for you, no processed foods, reduce your portion sizes. That was super easy for you guys to come up with in like 30 seconds. So why the heck are people so confused? I can't even figure it out. I mean, when I do an Amazon search on diet, I only get like 150,000 books. <laughs> I pulled out a couple of my favorites so you guys could enjoy them with me, because I did not want to enjoy them alone, okay? <laughs> so the first, you can do a low-fat diet and get fantastic results, or you can give up your low-fat diet and lose 40 pounds if you want. If you have to lose 45 pounds, I'm not sure what you do. Uh, if you want to eat like Jesus ate, <laughs> you can get a book for that. Really, you can. And if you're not a believer, or you prefer the other side, can just do the devil's diet. Uh, you can just eat cookies if you want. There's a cookie diet. You can diet fast, the fast diet, or you can just slow the hell down. Okay, and you can do the slow down diet. Yeah, someone thought that it was cool to eat like a cow. You can be a skinny bitch, or the French, those bitches don't even diet. <laughs> These books are like selling to real human people. <laughs> I wonder why they're so confused. Uh, and then I did just a quick Google search on diet. You guys heard of Google probably. Uh, 325 million results. 325 million results. And the first one that served, Google personalizes now, so you know, I, this is what I got served in Canada, apparently this is what I need the most, is Herbal Magic, the Herbal Magic Diet Plan. Okay? So, obviously this is all very comical and disturbing at the same time, but it also points to a couple truths. One truth is that when your clients are interested in seeking out diet advice, this, what I just showed you, is what they find. You may find things different. You may get resources from FitPro. You may get resources from PT on the net or some other curated type of information that's been designed specifically for you, right? It's been designed for a professional. So you don't have to see all of the bullshit that's out there. Okay? But your clients don't have that experience if not for you. Right? Who is going to curate their experience? Amazon? We know what they'll get. Google? They're going to get herbal magic as the first thing. Okay? So it's something to think about. If you're not curating their experience, who will? You are fortunate enough to have an experience curated, even at this event, right? The speakers have been chosen because we are incredibly good-looking and talented at what we do. I'm not sure if that's why we were chosen, but nevertheless, someone said they have to meet a certain standard to even come here to speak. So your experience was curated. Who's doing that for your clients? It's just something to think about. So what I'd like to do now, you know, you guys had some ideas about what the best diet might be. I'd like to actually settle the debate. Are you guys ready for this? I'm going to t you don't seem excited at all. I'm going, yeah, thank you. I think I can just right now come out with it, and then we'll just go to lunch, all right? I'll tell you what the best diet is. You guys had some answers, so let's do this. The best diet is the paleo diet. Let me tell you why, okay? Humans have sort of had the same genetic code for tens of thousands of years, right? We have, right? We haven't really evolved, our DNA hasn't changed. It's even really, really similar to chimpanzees. So why would we eat anything but what our Paleolithic ancestors ate? I mean, the diseases we're having right now are the result of not eating like our ancestors. But wait a second, I don't know. The paleo diet's generally like a lot of meats and vegetables, things you could have foraged. But if you look at where different people came from in different parts of the world, they didn't have access to the same foods. In fact, if you came from a certain part of the world and you lived there in the Paleolithic times, you would have had a no-meat diet. And if you lived in a certain part of the world, you would have had a high-meat, no-vegetable diet. So uh, it seems like maybe there's not even a Paleo diet anyway. Um, 
And uh, I don't know, all that meat scares me a little bit. I keep seeing all these studies about cancer and stuff, and I don't want to be like eating the cancer all the time. So uh, I'm going to change my mind, okay? We're going to go the Mediterranean diet. This is the most research-supported diet that's out there, okay? The Mediterranean is a beautiful place. People love to vacation there and relax and unwind. They eat lots of colorful fruits and vegetables and those healthy olive oils and monounsaturated fats and all that wonderful fish. The Mediterranean diet is the best diet. But aren't you worried a little bit about the fish nowadays? All the shit we're dumping into the oceans and stuff. I don't even know. And I've been reading these studies lately saying that the omega-3s that we thought were so good for us can oxidize in our body and make us like rancid, like the fish oil if it sits too long outside of your fridge. That frightens me a little bit. So I'm going to change my mind again. Okay, let's... Uh, all the meats and the fish and the pollutants and the cancers, we're going plant-based diet, okay? We get all those scary cancer-causing pollutants and things out of our system, and let's just eat the plants, okay? We can get enough protein from them, diversity of antioxidants. I think it's a wonderful choice. Let's go plant-based diet. Except I'm a little worried about that, too. All that shit we spray on the plants, the pesticides and all of that, I, I guess, I, I mean, I live in Canada, so I can't get like local organic produce throughout the year. Like come December, it's like tuber time. That's all I got, right? So I don't know about the plant-based diet. This is getting frustrating to me. Fuck it, let's not eat anything. <laughs> Intermittent fasting. This is what we're gonna do. We're going to go as long as we can without eating. And then when our willpower crumbles, we'll just eat some stuff. And then we'll go a long period of time again without, maybe even go the whole weekend without any food. That makes me feel a little safer. I'm not putting all that crap into my body. Obviously, there's a little bit of absurdity in what we just went through. But I hope it highlights some of the absurdity of the very dogmatic and almost religious approach that a lot of people do take toward nutrition. If you don't have a religious faith, I mean, you can marry them beautifully, like do the Jesus diet, then you got nutrition and you got faith and it's wonderful. But I see a lot of people who don't have a particularly religious inclination, but they choose a diet as their religion and they evangelize it and all of that kind of stuff. And we can see some absurdity in the approach. And so, rather than picking the best diet, what I'd like to do is maybe introduce a, a different philosophical approach altogether, which is maybe suggesting that what's the best diet is the wrong question to ask. And maybe that it's even, if you're a fitness professional or you coach clients, or even if your mother-in-law comes to you and asks what the best diet is, um, it's the wrong question to answer. And again, this is a bit of a philosophical point, but in the fitness industry, a lot of us were trained to be experts, right? So people hire us for our expertise, at least so we think. Which means that when someone asks a question, it's almost a pre-rational urge to want to answer them with the correct answer. Right? Because we're experts. If you're in a field you don't know very much about, but you might just be interested in, you feel okay not to know. But when you're hired as a trainer or a coach, it almost feels uncomfortably dirty not to know the answer. Right? I'm the expert here. But I would suggest that that's not your role at all as a coach. Uh, I'm doing the expert show up here today, where I'm just speaking and you're listening. Right? But the coaching show is a completely different game altogether. The coaching show isn't about answering people's questions. It's probably about asking them a question in return. So for example, if someone asks you as a high and mighty fitness expert what they should eat for breakfast, you could tell them, well, science has shown that X grams of protein at breakfast in the absence of this amount of carbohydrate manages insulin and glucagon levels such that blah, blah, blah. 
I would advise you against that, but you might go that approach, okay? That's the expert approach. Answer the question with all your expertise. The coach approach would be, what do you like to eat for breakfast? And now we can engage in like a dynamic dialogue about what your preferences are, what I might think would be a good way to resolve that with what I think is good nutrition advice, and we can agree on similar terms, okay? So with that said, what will you do when someone asks you what's the best diet if you don't think that's a good question? That little expert inside of you who wants to always know the answer will want to tell them the answer. Well, it's no processed food, or well, it's whatever your answer might be, paleo diet. But I would encourage you to engage in a totally different conversation, a gentle steering away from that. Maybe ask another question. Why would you like to know what the best diet is? Well, because I have about 20 pounds to lose and I don't feel very energetic. Oh, now we're getting somewhere. I don't need to tell you what diet book to buy. I actually have to coach you. I have to tell you the plan or the exercise or the next practice that you need to engage in to change your life in a positive way. So for me, one of the simplest ways to deflect bad questions isn't to say, that was the worst question I've ever heard. Please never ask it again. It's to just say, why do you ask that question in the first place? So I want to just implant that seed, right? Maybe this isn't the best question to ask and maybe you shouldn't ever answer it. Now, I think as fitness professionals, as we circle around this idea, I think one of our biggest opportunities is to do what I call putting an end to the diet debates. Because that's what exists, right? And what do most of the diet debates circle around? What are they arguing over? Macronutrients, right? Proteins, carbs, and fats. Is it high carb or low carb? Paleo is a fundamentally, generally a low carb approach. Higher fat, higher protein. Whereas vegan is almost the opposite in terms of macronutrients. So generally, what people are really bickering over is the macronutrient content of the diet. But what I want to do is I want to share some data right now that may suggest that the macronutrient content of the diet may be one of the least important factors in changing your body through nutrition, okay? So in the Journal for the American Medical Association late last year, 2013, they published this very short review. It's very short, very accessible. You can find it on the web if you want to see the data. I've pulled out some of the most relevant lines from it, okay? And what they did was they did a call to end the diet debates. This was published for the medical community. I wish it would have been published for the fitness community, but that's why I'm here right now. And I'd like to pull out some of the most interesting things that they found. From this paper, Numerous trials comparing diets differing in macronutrient composition, so some were high protein and low carb, and some were high fat and low carb, so they looked at a whole bunch of different studies. They were very small, less than a kilo of difference, and inconsistent differences, meaning they weren't even reliable, in weight loss and metabolic risk factors. In other words, it didn't matter what macronutrient composition you were on, you still lost about the same amount of weight, and you still changed your health in about the same amount, okay? And this should be a little bit discomforting to you, because many of you probably believe it's best to eat a higher protein diet and lower your carbohydrates or your sugars or something like that. But these data suggest maybe that's not the critical factor. So let me tell you how these data were arrived at. In 2013, they did four meta-analyses. So let me, let me tell you what a meta-analysis is in case you're not familiar. A meta-analysis is where scientists go in and they look at the whole body of scientific studies that have been done to date. And they compile them as if it was one huge study done. So if I were to do a scientific study, I might say, you four people are gonna eat paleo, you four are gonna eat vegan, and I'll compare the results, you versus you. Okay, and then we say which one won. So that's a normal scientific study. But if I repeated that study with U4 and U4 and U4 and U4, and they were all different studies, I could combine them and say, wow, look at this big population I have all of a sudden. Now I can generalize these results. 
Now I can say with a little bit more confidence that one actually did beat the other. Or maybe I can't say that. Maybe the results of the different trials will neutralize each other and we'll say, oh, well, this study seemed to show this, but that one showed the opposite. And when we average it all out, nothing happened. There was no difference. Okay? So what they did was there were four of these major meta-analyses, lots and lots of data, summarizing between 13 and 24 major trials. So it was something like nearly 100 studies they combined. And what they found was that there was only one thing that was correlated with results across all 100 trials. Adherence. It was the only thing consistently related with weight loss and disease-related outcomes. Adherence, meaning, I don't really even like the word adherence, it feels all sort of, I don't know, military or police. It's consistency. It, it means you actually could stick with the nutrition plan that you were prescribed. You could actually do it. And the people who did it, whatever it was, got great results. The people who didn't, didn't get quite the same type of results. And it didn't matter what the macronutrients were. Interesting. Interesting. Now, when my mind starts turning over this information, I start to think to myself, well, what then is one of the most important factors? What, how, what could describe that? Because that's just a description of the fact that you did it. Okay, but why if you ate high carb and you ate low carb and you both got great results, what's the common theme there then? You followed the diet, but why? Why would that matter? I mean, I could follow someone right off a cliff, right? So what is it? What is it about that? Any ideas? What is it about following some type of prescribed eating plan that changes people? We're going to actually explore it in a moment, okay? So just sit with not knowing for a second, all right? So for me, the bottom line is that sometimes we think, it's so weird, we think nutrition is about the food. And sometimes it's actually not about the food. Weird. So, so hard for people who love nutrition and study nutrition and biochemistry to get this. Right? It's so hard. Because you're like, yes, but food has chemicals and our bodies are chemical processing factories. Ah, my head's going to explode. But sometimes it's not about the food. And just we'll take some examples. I mean, we can't go back to Paleolithic times and know with certainty what they ate. Anyone who tells you that is full of shit. Because they're using fossil records, and fossil records are only based on what you can find imprinted in some rock somewhere. For example, new methods in the last few years have shown that grains were eaten as far back as 300,000 years ago. Pre-paleo, people were eating grains. But the reason why they never found them before in the fossil records is because they didn't have methods sophisticated enough to find the grains. But now they're finding them. So anyone who says, oh, paleo, no, grains only came with agriculture. Wrong. It's wrong. Okay? It's okay that you believe that. You don't have to feel like an idiot if you did believe it at some point. Because no one in the world knew the truth. So you can only act on what the best scientists in the world know at the time. Okay? But if we look at modern hunter-gatherer tribes, around the world, we can look at their diets as maybe a model of what a hunter-gatherer group might eat when they're looking for food and using that as a means of survival. So anyone know what these two tribes share in common diet-wise? How do they eat? They eat very high-fat diet, very low roughage and vegetation and vegetables and things like that. Okay? Then we look at uh, these groups here. Okay? So, their diets are a little bit different, but not a lot of meat. Okay? One group eats a very high-fat but high-vegetable diet. The other one, not very high-fat, but also almost exclusively vegetables and tubers. Sweet potatoes and potatoes and things like that. Wild, but still what they find growing. So we have these different groups who all eat different foods. And some of these groups, if you compare their diets on a macronutrient perspective, how much proteins, fats, and carbs they eat, their diets would look almost opposite. Okay? Yet, none of them share any of the diseases that we have prevalent in our society today, and they generally don't have some of the body composition and physiological problems that we have in modern society. Okay? So, wildly different diets, similar health outcomes. Weird. Almost like it validates what we said in that JAMA study, yes? 
To me, it indicates that the human body is amazingly adaptable to varied food conditions, but I wonder what you think about. I wonder what your answer will be when I say, how could two people or two tribes or two groups eat very, very different macronutrient compositions and yet still be okay? And let me put it this way. Do you know any vegans who are in great shape? I do. Some who are in fantastic shape. Do you know any paleo people who are in fantastic shape? Yes. Do you know any people who follow zone diet and are in fantastic shape? Yes. Do you know any people who don't even think about what they eat and are in fantastic shape? Yes, you know all of that. How can that be? How can that be? Tell me how that can be, please. I'm trying to figure it out my whole career. Yeah. So two ideas, maybe they have a metabolic type and they somehow stumble upon the right diet for them or they adapt to what they're eating. Go ahead. They may just not overeat. Maybe that's simple. What else do they have in common? Go ahead in the back. Great. They probably have physical activity in common. What else? Any other ideas? Anything that hasn't been mentioned? Generally, people who actually go ahead, like you said, and, and have whatever, you, whatever it takes to follow a particular eating plan or ideology, are probably making better food choices, right? So they may not be eating processed foods. So if you start to think about it, maybe the debates that we're having around macronutrients are just a smokescreen that prevent us from seeing the real factors involved in getting better through nutrition. See what I'm saying? Like maybe we keep debating those and thinking about it, but it's just a sham, right? It's just a curtain in front of our eyes where we can't actually see what makes a difference. So we mess around arguing about new things and new diets and new macronutrients, and the truth is lying somewhere else. The reality of what changes people's lives through nutrition is a totally different thing. Maybe, I'm not saying it's true, I'm saying maybe. Taking it a little further, Adherence, what we talked about, compliance, uh, consistency, isn't just about the food either, right? It actually has a lot to do with things like this. Your food preferences, you mentioned this earlier. Your food tolerance, if you can't, I, I'm lactose intolerant. I'm not having much dairy for the benefit of all, okay? <laughs> Cultural or religious tradition, right? Food availability and food budget. I love when your cornerstone of a nutrition plan is only eat organic, local, free-range, or grass-fed food. Seriously? You just eliminated 99% of the world from doing what you think is healthy. Good job on that. So there's all these factors that play into the recommendations you might make, right? I mean, I also love when people are like, oh, well, paleo or whatever the diet might be, and then you meet a client who's Asian or Indian or something like that, and you're like, well, you're out, obviously. <laughs> Can't follow it because I need you to actually act like a white English person instead, please. Right? I mean, that's what you're doing. You're saying, well, this is the white English ideal of nutrition or the, the fitness professional ideal of nutrition. And I know you come from a different place with different cultural traditions, but just be more like me. Duh. <laughs> I was talking with a, a colleague the other day, and this, this notion that we have that when a new client comes to see us, and we're like, oh, fitness, yes, well, we have a plan for that. And you just have to not be you anymore and be like us now, right? And it sounds so absurd, but kind of, isn't that what we do in this industry? Isn't it kind of? You need to change your lifestyle. Oh, that sounds so good. No one would argue against changing your lifestyle. But you're also saying stop living the life that you live completely and entirely and start living the one that I live because it's better. I don't know. It doesn't feel like coaching to me. And my buddy said it's like robbery. I'm going to steal your life, give you a different one. How do you like that? Other factors, these are more physiological, body type, starting point, 
But there's nutrition beliefs, there's time availability, there's food know-how. Again, if you don't have any food know-how, how are you going to ask someone to cook four or five meals a day? Oh, vegetables are really easy to prepare if you know how to do it. Period. How do you do it? I don't know how. You do. So these are all things that factor in. So, you know, I mean, I've heard these types of things. I, I, I know you have a super low budget for food. But if you sell your car, maybe one of your kids, you'll be able to afford these organic and free-range foods that we recommend in our program. We only eat whole foods here, and that's the only way to get healthy and fit. Um, I used to split my time between uh, Toronto, Ontario and Canada, and Austin, Texas. So I used to do this drive twice a year down to Texas and then back up to Ontario. And you know, you go through a, a bunch of states in the US, and in Arkansas, I was always amazed. Arkansas is like the neighboring state of Texas, and you have to get through it to, to get back up east. And you would stop at a grocery store in Arkansas, and they didn't have perishable foods in it. Like the town's grocery store didn't have a refrigeration or frozen food section. They didn't have it. Do you know what that means? Everything was in a box or a package or a can. Everything. That's all you could buy. Is that whole town fucked? <laughs> I mean, it sucks, but I bet you you could get them fit, right? So do we need one of our rules to be you can't get in shape unless you have whole, I mean, local, free-range? They're not getting it. There are people who are not getting it. Now, many of your clients probably can, okay? But do you want that to be one of the hurdles that they need to overcome just to enter the process of getting fit? I'm not sure I do. Another one, you're not alone. Carbs, we all like them, but this program's about cutting way back. Low carb is what works. Insulin, the enemy. Bye-bye to pasta and potatoes, and there's absolutely no sugar in this diet plan. Okay, you could go that approach. Many people in fitness do go that approach. Sure, I understand the moral and ethical obligation you feel, but eating animal foods, that's how we do it here. You need the protein and the fat, and that's how our ancestors ate. So suck it up, throw a steak on that grill, and let's get this party started. That is kind of the ethos, right? I mean, you probably never hear anyone say it exactly like that, but doesn't that feel like the ethos behind some of the advice that's being slung around in fitness nowadays? That's the spirit of it, right? So to me, I just want to point out, I really think belonging to one nutritional camp is the antithesis of care. Now, if I'll, I'll put a caveat on that. If you love CrossFit and you only want to train CrossFit people, that's fine. If you love the paleo diet and it changed your life and you only want to coach people who are the perfect profile fit for following paleo, that's fine too. Just recognize what you're doing. Just know that you're limiting your market very dramatically. You may want to, that's fine. But don't pretend you're setting up to help every client who comes to see you, because you're not. If you think every client that you could possibly meet that would want to hire you wants to do CrossFit and Paleo, you're wrong. Okay, so if that's your business, fine. But I'm saying if you want to be a coach who can help any person who comes to see you at any time, you can't belong to a camp. You have to be agnostic. You have to believe that all the methods have a place. You just need to figure out what place they have. Maybe not all the methods. I've seen some methods that have no place, but all the best ones. So the diet debates, they're fantastic for the diet industry. Because if you keep fighting over macronutrients, we can keep publishing books, all kinds of books, and you'll buy the shit out of them. You will, because you're arguing around the wrong stuff. See, I think there's not a grand conspiracy here, because I think the people publishing the books are also confused. They don't know what's cause and what's effect. Okay, we'll talk about what the causes and effects are. But really what we're talking about, these debates are horrible for medicine and they're horrible for your clients. Horrible, okay? 
So I think it's time to seize our biggest opportunity. We have to put an end to these misguided kind of macronutrient debates in nutrition. Stop engaging in this question altogether, what the best diet is, and start focusing on the real factors. If we were able to blow away the smoke or remove the curtain or take away this confusion that we have and look at what really impacts change through nutrition, then I think we can help more clients. We can find principles instead of tactics. Right? Principles are the things that you can find a hundred tactics for. And if you stay true to the principle, you can help any client. If you follow tactics, they're very situational and specific. Okay? So, how do we accomplish that? Well, this is not how we accomplish it. We have a long legacy in fitness about writing down our diet and giving it to people. What should I do diet-wise? 8 a.m., six egg whites, oatmeal whatever, and you give them your diet. And I think that's actually the product of this exchange. Oh, you're in really awesome shape. Can you tell me what you do? Right? And that's what it is. And you go, oh, well, here, let me just write it down for you. Right? That's, that's the legacy we've had. I, I think it comes from the bodybuilding days. Right? If you saw Arnold Schwarzenegger in his heyday at the gym, and you were just a farm boy from the Midwest, and you're like, oh, my God, look at that mountain of a man. I want to look like that big, strong Austrian dude. Can you tell me what you do? Just write it down. So that's what we do now, right? We give people diets to follow, meal plans. It, does that work? It does. 100% of the time for 10% of the people. I don't know about you, but that's a really crappy success rate. It's 90% failure, another way of looking at it. Okay, so why are we doing this still? I mean, I have people ask me, yes, diet, writing down diets never works, but I found this new app that does it for you. <laughs> it's the same thing, it's the same thing. Technology is not gonna solve this problem, okay? We need to think of it very differently. So uh, for me, and for those of you who aren't familiar, uh, the, the company that I founded, um, 14 years ago now, Precision Nutrition, um, we're doing the world's largest body transformation projects. So over the last five years, we've coached about 30,000 people online um, directly with coaches. Uh, they've lost over 450,000 pounds of body fat. And so we have the world's largest database on body transformation and change. We have a team of scientists, data scientists pouring over it. We're publishing studies about it all the time. So. Uh, when I talk about this stuff, it's coming from a place of pretty deep experience, okay? The thing that we've found very reliably uh, in terms of what helps people change is sustainable nutrition interventions. Build habits slowly, strategically, and progressively over time. Let me tell you the opposite of this. So I don't know if this happens in the UK, but it's in, the, in the US and Canada, it's a very famous story. Guy comes in, you're a trainer, and he's 40 pounds overweight and he's got a class reunion coming up. Um, so you go back to your high school and you revisit with everyone that you went to school with. And he's a former football player in high school. He was a football star. And uh, so he wants to get in wicked shape. So the guy will do whatever you say, okay? So he's doing kettlebells while walking on the treadmill. He's lifting every day in the gym. Diet-wise, he's peeling the skin off his chicken breast. He's steaming the precise amount of broccoli, and the guy's literally melting. He's just ripping up body fat, coming off like crazy. Shows up at his class reunion. Oh, you're the football star you once were. Everyone loves him. And then you don't see him for a while at the gym. And then you bump into him at the mall, or the grocery store, and the guy's gained back all the weight that he lost with interest. You guys know this story? Okay. That's not sustainable. What he did was not something he could build into his life. What he did was a sprint for the event. And what you did, oh, oh, here it comes. You facilitated that. You gave the alcoholic a drink. I wonder if there's a different approach we could take, okay? One that keeps that guy, the football star, for 20 years instead of 20 minutes, okay? So it's building habits slowly and strategically over time. And I want to talk about what they might swirl around because 
These are the things I think that are important. So first of all, seemingly opposite nutritional interventions can all work. We've already talked about that. I think most of you, at least some part of you, believes me a little, right? If you've seen a vegan who's in awesome shape and a high meat eaten, low vegetable eaten person who's in awesome shape, you have to believe that seemingly opposite interventions may work. I just wonder if they're really opposite. Right? They're opposite when it comes to the macronutrients, but are they really opposite is the question you have to ask. In other words, do they have more of the same than they have different? So here are the things that they might have the same. The first is they raise awareness and attention. You mentioned it earlier. If someone has a discipline to follow a plan, dot, 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 insert a whole bunch of things in there. One of them is that they start to think about, I think one of you up here said it, you're just starting to think about what you're eating more and you're not eating as mindlessly. If I give you a set of rules to follow, then you start thinking about what you're eating, not only when you're eating, but in between meals. Has anyone ever had a transformation through fitness and nutrition? Some of you. In other words, you changed your body in an important way to you. If you've done that, you know you think about this almost all the time in the beginning, right? So giving someone a plan may increase awareness and attention. It sounds all new agey, right? Mindfulness, presence, stuff like that. I don't mean it in that way. I just mean you're paying attention to your life. You're paying attention to what you eat and the choices that you make. Almost any intervention will do that. Next, they focus on food quality. Someone back there mentioned it. Maybe once you start following these things and you're thinking about eating all the time, you start making better decisions and you discover, oh wow, there's actually a farmer's market up the road from my house throughout the summer. Maybe I'll check that out. So you're making all these sort of, I don't know, collateral decisions around eating better and you start to choose better foods, regardless of whether it's high protein or low fat or whatever. Uh, they help eliminate nutrient deficiency and we'll get to that one in a minute. I think generally when you start paying more attention, generally most of the best diets introduce more vegetables and nutrients. Control appetite and food intake. No matter whether you follow vegan or paleo, you're getting a lot of foods that are satiating. If you eat big salads and you have a big vegetarian diet, your belly's full at the end of a meal because it's not very calorie dense. If you eat a paleo diet and lots of meat, protein is very satiating. So they may actually satiate you. They make you feel full, so you don't eat so much. Someone mentioned that earlier. It might be calories. Maybe they're just not eating so many calories. And that's true, but you can't tell someone to eat less calories for the rest of their life. It's like telling them to be better looking. Just be better looking. <laughs> you, you can't ask someone to change. People need to eat, right? You can't just say for the rest of your life, don't eat as much food as your body requires. So there's other ways to get at that. And then they promote regular exercise, which was your point earlier. Interestingly, if the only thing that's different between these wildly different dietary plans is the macronutrients and all this stuff is the same, isn't it that they're more alike than they're different? It's kind of a cool way to see through all the bullshit, isn't it? Okay, so how do we do some of this? How can we implement this approach? The first way is what we call a, a practice-based approach, okay? So even the most well-intentioned fitness professionals do this. So they're like, okay, I'm gonna make it very easy for my clients. They're gonna come in, they're gonna start working with me, and I'm gonna give them a nutrition and lifestyle handout. Okay, so there's maybe four or five things to do. Eat breakfast every day, drink water, take a multivitamin, take fish oil, get eight hours of sleep. If you can do these five things, none of which you do right now, for the rest of your life, you'll be healthy and fit. If not, meh. You also have to exercise with me three times a week. Okay? That's a lot of changes. It's easy for you because in, you live in fitness land already, right? It's like someone who is from the US, doesn't know anything at all about anywhere else in the world, decides they're gonna go to France, okay? So they fly over to France, and they're all terrified because they don't speak the language. They don't know if the people are going to be nice to them. So it's scary. It's scary to go there, just like it's scary for you or your clients to come see you. Because you live in fitness land. It's easy to live here. You speak the language. You know the streets. You don't even need a map. But your clients do, and they're kind of terrified. So what we do is we do one new practice at a time. 
we like to introduce only one thing. Because we know that if you introduce one thing, there's about an 85% chance of success. You increase it to two, and it drops to 35. And you increase it to three, and this is, I think they call it like snowball's chance in hell or something like that. Okay? There's almost no chance, like less than 10% chance of them succeeding if you give them just three things that you expect them to practice regularly. So how do we build a good practice? Okay. Well, first of all, it has to be something they can do daily. That's what you do with practice. You do it daily. Notice I haven't called it a habit yet, okay? Because I don't expect someone to adopt a new habit and be good at it on the first day. Has anyone here ever learned something you didn't know before? Yeah? Okay. Were you awesome at it on the first day? You're like, look at this, I rocked it. No, you're like tentative, it's a little step forward, a little step back, right? That's how you learn new things. So we call it a practice because that's all I want you to do is practice it. You don't have to even be good at it. In fact, I tell them you're probably going to suck at this at first. But I want you to keep practicing, okay? And so that's what we do. We introduce a new practice. And we, the, the rules, though, when you create the practices, it has to be done daily. It has to be easy to understand and measure. So in other words, if you ask them if they did it, it's easy to say yes or no. Right? If I ask you, did you eat more vegetables yesterday? It's a little bit ambiguous. More vegetables than what? More vegetables than her? More vegetables than I had the day before? I don't know the answer to that. But if I say, did you eat the three servings of vegetables, each serving being about the size of your fist, you either have to say yes or no. Right? Because you know the answer. I did it or I didn't. It has to feel small, but it also has to be strategic. I talked about this a lot yesterday in some of my sessions. Okay, so many of your clients are fairly accomplished people, yes? Okay, if they can afford you, they've got some money, right? And they probably accomplish things professionally in the world. So imagine this. You are a very successful business person, entrepreneur, whatever the case may be. You have enough money to hire a trainer. And your trainer says, well, listen, I'm going to give you just a little baby habit right now. Okay? Because you can't handle a big one. You'll totally fail at it. So we're just going to keep it small. Just a little baby habit for you. Okay? Can you imagine? That's condescending as hell. So don't call it a small habit. Don't call it a little habit. Don't call it anything but strategic. I'm going to give you one strategic practice. Okay? Why do we call it strategic? That's not smoke and mirrors because you have an extra thing to figure out, which is what is the biggest limiting factor in their life right now? Okay? Most of us take a best practices approach. We say, well, I think people should eat breakfast, drink water, sleep a certain amount, and whatever. So I'm going to tell my client to do all of the things that I think are healthy. Right? A limiting factor approach is, what's the one thing in their life that's standing in the way right now? If I can find that, and we can make that their practice, it'll be small, it'll be just one thing, and it'll be strategic. Okay, and as long as it's something they can do daily, easy to understand and measure, and inspire confidence, you've got a great practice. Okay? It's a great practice. How will you know if someone's confident that they can do it or not? How will you know if the practice feels small enough and manageable for them? How will you know? Ask them. It's brilliant. Usually people don't say that. You ask them. It's actually a magical thing when you actually ask your client questions instead of trying to be the expert all the time. And again, most people don't think of asking because of a paradigm that they have, blinders that they have on. I'm the expert, so I do the telling, they do the asking, right? That's what fitness is. We're a group of authoritarians by heritage, okay? So, ask them. Here's the question we ask. Okay, so here's the new practice I'm thinking that maybe we work on for the next two weeks. Or maybe a month. How confident do you feel that you could do this on a scale of 0 to 10, 0 being no way, and 10 being, of course I could do that, every day for the next 30 days? That's what we ask. Before we ask anyone to do anything fitness-wise, that's the question we ask them. Okay? Why do we do that? Any ideas? It's brilliant, yes. There's absolutely no point in giving someone something that they're not going to be able to do. Isn't that magical? Do you do that now? You do. Do I do that now? I do. I got little kids. I do it all the time. I feel all bad. I'm the worst dad in the world today. There's no point in giving people something they can't do. And what happens when you ask someone and get their permission and get their score? What happens to them? You get buy-in. You can call it buy-in, yes. 
you get trust. They're a cooperator in the process. They start to feel some control over the process. Right? They feel like they can tell you three out of 10, which means no, and then you're gonna respond dynamically to that. Rather than, boss is gonna tell me what to do. And I'm gonna maybe try and do it, even if I don't think I can. And then maybe I'll lie to them about having done that. Or just quit training with them because I feel bad all the time because I can't do what they're asking me to do. See how this is a retention piece as well? I call it hiding under the desk because we work online with clients, right? So when you follow up with a client and they skip two of your emails in a row, they're hiding under the desk, right? And the email's in, right? Why are they hiding under the desk? Because they feel bad. They don't want to answer you because they know they're going to have to give you bad news, okay? So let's make it easier for them, but strategic, okay? So inspire confidence. Again, they must tackle the most important limiting factors first. The number one objection I get when I roll out this method to people is, yeah, but you don't know my clients. I am in a very special situation. My clients need results like yesterday. They won't tolerate this slow bullshit, okay? Here's the magic. If you address their limiting factor first, this doesn't happen slow. It actually happens faster and it sustains over the long period. And they start to feel this thing after about week four. We're like, holy shit, I've been doing it for two weeks longer than I ever have in my life and I haven't quit. I think I might be able to do this for longer. So they actually build confidence in themselves, okay? It's kind of a magical thing. But you need to get over your prejudices about it, that it'll go slower. And the way to do that is fix the limiting factors first. So what we like to do is we actually like to look at it, how do you pick your limiting factors? We look at it like a framework, okay? So what really matters? That's what we ask. For this person, what really matters? How can I measure that? Make sure it's making a difference or they're doing it. What should I recommend? And how do I follow up with them? Okay, so these are questions I ask when I start thinking about a person, okay? And when I think about a person, I have to know them, right? I have to know about this client. You know, one of the best sort of epiphanies I had as a coach was learning that my job is actually to learn about my client, not to coach them, right? It's my job to know you and what you need. Actually, it's my new project, okay? I need to learn you. I need to learn who you are, what you need, and only then can I help you. Because you're the expert on your own life. I know nothing about your life, okay? I need to learn enough to be able to help, okay? One assessment via questionnaire probably usually isn't enough, right? I need to ask you some questions, you need to answer them in real time. So this is how we get at some of that. So for me, this is the model that I use, okay? So I think one of the most important first things is nutrient deficiency, okay? I think a lot of people are walking around if they haven't paid attention to nutrition before with subclinical nutritional deficiencies. And as a result of that, their physiology doesn't work right. What's the general battle cry of fitness around exercise and food? What do we say all the time, almost without thinking? How do I get in shape? You do two things. You Eat less and move more, right? It's just, we don't even, it's just, you know what I mean? We don't even think about that. But here's the interesting thing. If someone's physiology doesn't work right, then maybe it needs to get working and they don't need to eat less. It's an interesting thing you see all the time, right? If you dig into people's physiology, you're like, oh, you're actually eating very little right now and you're still over fat and unhealthy. Huh, eat less, exercise more? That's not gonna work for you. We need to fix your physiology a little bit, make sure your metabolism is working well, you're metabolically flexible, and then we can start looking at diet. In fact, you might be able to eat more and exercise more if we fix your physiology. So we start looking at nutrient deficiencies, and there's a couple ways to do it. You can do it with blood tests, but you're not going to, okay? Maybe on one or three clients in your life. 
You can do it with uh, assessments. You can have them write down what they eat and plug it into a dietary analysis program. You can even do it with photos nowadays. Meal Snap, it's an app. You take a picture of it and it tells you how much carbs, proteins, and fats are in that meal. Okay? It's decently accurate. Okay? Um, or you can just say, all right, I've worked with 30,000 clients. The most common things that we see are water, some mild dehydration. We see vitamin and mineral deficiencies, a host of them, uh, individual to person. Uh, protein, too low protein intake, and too few omega-3s in the diet. So if I know that, maybe we just start with those. The next one is food amounts, so we're getting to that. But I'll just give you one example of this limiting factor model. Uh, client, female client with anemia, okay? So you have a female client who has anemia, feels awful all the time, okay? How do you fix that client? You could put them on a paleo diet, which introduces 50 new rules, and hopefully that works out for them. Maybe they do it, maybe it helps them or not. Or you can say, well, women who generally have anemia are iron deficient, so I'll give them a high-quality iron supplement, and bam, within two weeks, they're feeling awesome and think you absolutely changed their life. Hmm. That's the difference between limiting factor and best practice. Best practice is, well, you don't feel great, I'll give you all the things that I think are healthy. Limiting factor is, hmm, I know something about you. If we fix this one thing, dehydration is another one. People who are chronically dehydrated feel like crap all the time. You fix that one thing, one th and that's just drinking more water. We work on that. And now all of a sudden they feel better, they start to see physical changes, and then you can introduce another one once that's a new practice. You see the difference? Limiting factor is the thing that makes them feel awful or overweight or unhealthy right now. And what can we do to move them forward an inch? That's a limiting factor and we work on that. The next thing we think about outside of nutritional deficiencies is food amount. Okay, someone mentioned that earlier. That's the first place most of us go. I don't like going there first because I feel like you have to fix the physiology first in people. I want to give you one more example of that. Um, in the UK here, in Canada and the US, there have been a bunch of studies done in the last few years where they take prison inmates and school children, not in the same time, but separately, and they give them a multivitamin and a fish oil, both groups. And all of a sudden what happens is magical and the same. Both groups, incidence of violent and antisocial behavior goes down like 60% and cognitive test scores go up. Is that because fish oil and multis are magical? No. It's because they probably had nutritional deficiencies. We fixed them, their bodies started working right, and then they started acting like they're supposed to act as human beings. Okay? It's interesting. Food amounts, we're getting to this point now. Okay, we fixed the physiology, now we can start looking at limiting factors around how much you're eating. Okay? And here, we don't do calorie counting. I think it's annoying and it's weird, okay? Why is it weird? I have food on my plate. You want me to turn it into math, do math on it, <laughs> subtract stuff from it, and then turn it back into food just to have lunch? No, not doing that. We used visual depictions of portions, and I'll show you how. This is a starting point, and we'll talk about how to maybe customize later, but bigger people have bigger hands. Smaller people have smaller hands. I carry my hand most places I go, okay? So what we like to do is use your hand as like a portable, personalized uh, portion manager, okay? So if you look at the circumference and thickness of your palm, and you say that's a portion of protein. Men eat about two of them with each meal. Women eat about one. Okay? Uh, your fist, vegetables. Okay? Your fist is one portion of vegetables. So go two and one. Starches, fruits, high carbohydrate foods, one cupped palm sized portion, what you could hold in here. Not like to the top here, but right in here. Okay? <laughs> two and one. And a thumb is about the size of a portion of fat, whether that's avocado, whether that's a tablespoon of olive oil, whether that's almonds, thumb of fats. So if you, you don't even have to prescribe these. Sometimes women get mad at me. They're like, I'm not eating that little food. Damn you. <laughs> You're not twice as big as me. But remember, first of all, it's palm size, right? So smaller people have smaller palms. They get smaller portions. Bigger people get bigger portions. So it scales a little. And then you can change it if you want. If you're losing too much weight, you could add a little bit, you know. Don't get mad at me. I like you. 
So that's a great starting point in terms of food amount. And you notice the, the magic of it. You don't actually have to count any calories, right, as a client. You're just like, oh, cool, I'm at the restaurant, use my palm. Okay, oh, that's not enough chicken, give me two, whatever, right? And you can use it at home. Most of you can stop here. Most of your clients, if you fix nutritional deficiencies and give them that, and they do it consistently, okay, are going to be good. You don't have to do any more. You've got their physiology working right, you get the calories in the ballpark, you have a nice mix of proteins, carbs, and fats, you're done. But some clients are going to be extra ambitious. They've got the reunion coming up after all. So we do a little bit of body type recommendation for them. So we use somatotypes, so this is our ectomorph, usually tall, thin, lean, generally higher metabolisms. And for them we just add a portion of carbs and take away a portion of fat, because they tend to do better with higher carb diets. Okay? There's some physiology around this, don't have time to get into it today, but we've written tons of articles on it, it's on our site. So it's just, you see three carb portions and one fat, and then the same protein and vegetables. For our mesomorphs, our more sort of naturally athletic looking body types, same mix as in the beginning. So you know, you've got this sort of mix of your fats and, and carbs. You've got two, 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 two. And then for your endomorphs, who tend to handle carbs more poorly, we go extra fat and fewer carbs. So it's just a reciprocal relationship between carbs and fats, that's all, right? When fats go up, carbs go down. When carbs go up, fats go down. And you determine where to start, at least, from body type. Okay? Just an easy, quick schema. Oh, I've got an ectomorphic client or an endomorphic client. Here, here's what your plate might look like, or whatever. And again, this assumes three to four meals a day. If you're eating six meals a day at this portion size, it's probably too much. Unless you're an elite athlete training super hard like it's your job. So, summary. Let's stop it. Let's stop the which diet is best game. Instead, I challenge you to start looking for common themes. Because when you can do that, you will never need an expert again to help you interpret what's the best anything, right? I don't want you to leave here and go, yeah, that guy made a lot of good points. And then something comes out six months from now and you're like, I can't wait to get back to FitPro and ask him what he thinks about that, okay? I want you guys to be your own thinkers and scientists, if you will, and start looking for the common themes. You ask yourself, all oh, this new thing came out, all the young guys have a boner over it. <laughs> Everyone's excited about it. How does this fit into the schema that I've already figured out? What's the triaging system? What's the common theme? What smoke screen are they using to try and get me to think this is different? Okay, ask that of everything, new supplement, new diet, whatever. Use what we know about change. Some of the things I hinted at here today are basic, basic principles. They're like change psychology 101. There's a whole field out there that teaches you how to help people change their behaviors or tweak them or do better. An entire field. It's actually way more accomplished than our field. And none of us ever go to their seminars. None of us ever read their books. None of us ever figure out how to help a human change, although there's PhDs out there talking about it and who are teaching you how to do it. Okay, no one in fitness is publishing that course. We just actually released one, but use what we know about change. Okay, we know things about how humans can change their behaviors, but we're not using them in this field. One practice at a time, a specific way of constructing that practice, a specific way of engaging people in the process, that's how they change. They don't change the way we do it in fitness, which is bossy or straight up, here's your plan, okay? And then anchor around the triage system. You guys know what a triage system is? Every emergency room has one, right? You walk in with a cut on your finger and it's bleeding pretty good. I walk in, my brain is hanging out the right side of my head. Who do they see first? That's triage, right? They're going to try and put my brain back in my head before they put the... Yeah, she, she's like, I want them to see me, though. I don't want to wait three hours. Um, so that's triage. And that's what we do with nutrition, right? That's what limiting factor is. What's your triage system? What is their nutritional head hemorrhage? And what is their nutritional finger cut? Prioritize them appropriately.
So at this point, I'm already over time, so it's the end. I want to thank you very much for spending your time with me today, listening and participating so well. This was actually a really fun session for me, so thank you. Well, I'm back. Hope you enjoyed the seminar. At this point, I'd love for you to walk away remembering two things. First, the human body is amazingly adaptable. We can do well under all sorts of different dietary conditions, which means that the best diet from a physiology standpoint is the one that works psychologically for you. And second, if you're either paid to help others eat well or you just help friends and family because you can, it's important to be a dietary agnostic. Don't hold on to a single dietary philosophy and force that on everyone. Instead, develop a nutrition coaching process, one that helps people evaluate the best way of eating for their body and their lifestyle. In the end, if you want some help designing your own nutrition coaching system, I'd be happy to lend a hand. In the coming weeks, through our Precision Nutrition Certification course, I'll be taking a group of trainers and coaches and teaching them how to deliver world-class nutrition advice to every type of client. It's the industry's most respected nutrition education and certification program. And if you like this seminar, I know you'll get a lot out of it. To find out more, just click the link below this video. Because if you're interested in learning a proven nutrition system, deepening your education, and boosting your credentials, then I know you'll love the certification. Check it out. Okay, everyone, that's it for this week's edition of Precision Nutrition's The Complete Fitness Professional Podcast. For more information about how to become the complete fitness professional yourself and for some awesome free nutrition and coaching resources, come visit us on the web at www.precisionnutrition.com. You could also visit us on Facebook or on Twitter at InsidePN. Talk to you next time.